a rule I learned in school. Get your money every Friday. Happy endings are the rule. So divide up those in darkness from the ones who This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw, and today is December the 12th, 2006. Jingle bells, jingle bells. Here it comes, ready or not. Ah, I don't mind the holiday stuff. I don't mind it anymore. I just take the chocolate and the music and the lights. Maybe the turkey stuffing. Wine is good. I feel no worse at Christmas than at any other time of the year. I had a pleasant weekend this past weekend at the KPFA Holiday Crafts Fair. I sold a few books and CDs and talked to lots and lots of people. I will try to fill the requests that you gave me. Ah, uh, oh, yes, time to answer some of your kind letters. I want to thank Jerry in Sebastopol for his very special letter. It's wonderful to know that my spin on the poet Edna St. Vincent Millay got to him. Uh, it's so nice to know that somebody's listening. Yes, poets never die. Time worships language, and you know, it's always there for us, no matter uh, what the political scene is always making our lives. Read our Greek tragedies. Anyway, this Christmas, I mean this holiday season, I'm back into children's classics. Totally retro. Gonna fight Scooby-Doo, you know. <laughs> Hope springs eternal. There was a sweet woman at the fair who kept asking me where I found that story of Peter Pan, the one with all the subtleties about uh, Mr. and Mrs. Darling and their relationship. I said, well, that was the original book, you know, the unabridged version. You have to ask for that nowadays. You have to ask the bookstore people to find you the original. Uh, I think of the incredible stories of Hans Christian Andersen. Uh, there's almost nothing left of them in the little uh, cardboard cutout versions that You'll find, uh, oh, The Little Mermaid, for example. That's actually a novella of sorts. It's uh, extremely S&M. It's, uh, what is that? It's uh, blood-soaked Christianity. I'm not sure most modern mothers would uh, want to read it to their children. I loved it. But check out the originals whenever you can. Uh these books are so old that they're becoming new again. I mean, it's been so long since we've read the uh, 19th century originals. Uh, I was looking at Mary Poppins, and for my Thursday morning spot, I decided to go ahead and read 
the story of Ferdinand the Bull again. Ferdinand the Bull has become my favorite, my emblematic book uh, for a banned book, banned children's book. Uh, it's at the top of my list. I found a child at the Holiday Crafts Fair to gift with Ferdinand. Uh, it's written by Monroe Leaf, and it has drawings by this genius, Robert Lawson. I remember getting copies of it for as little as $4. My most recent copy was 7 It's the classic tale of a little bull who would rather just sit and smell the flowers than fight in the bull ring. Now, the author states that he wrote the 800 words of this children's tale in less than an hour. His widow, Margaret Leaf, tells a story in Publishers Weekly here. She says, One Sunday afternoon, when she was trying to read manuscript, uh, her husband, Monroe, persisted in talking to her, and she told him to go go away, you know, amuse himself. About 40 minutes later, he handed her six pages of yellow legal paper with the story uh, of Ferdinand. And a few years later, this story nudged gone with the wind off the top of the bestseller lists. We're talking 1936, soon after the start of the Spanish Civil War. And uh, Monroe Leaf says the only Spanish name he knew was Ferdinand, so he called him Ferdinand the Bull. Uh, Some people felt that the book was downright anti-fascist. Hitler had a special book burning in Germany, The book there was labeled Degenerate Democratic Propaganda. (laughs) Ferdinand was condemned as a pacifist, anarchist, communist. Life magazine, look, the New Yorker wrote about him. Monroe Leaf, the author, was attacked in the Cleveland Plain Dealer for subverting the children of America. (laughs) Anyway... My mother read this story to me, and she needed to see Ferdinand as someone who enjoyed the wine of life. The little bull likes to sit under a cork tree, and there are clusters of corks, bottle corks, drawn like clusters of grapes in the tree. So my mother took this to mean that um, the illustrator, at any rate, might be a drinker. It was his private joke. A more recent interpretation has it that Ferdinand likes to get stoned so that when he's smelling all those flowers in the lovely lady's hair, he's just getting high. Whatever anyone thinks, Viking Press sold out eight editions within 13 months and the book has never been out of print. Now, back in 1986, Publishers Weekly gives a sales figure of two and a half million copies sold up to that time. The book has been translated into 60 languages, but it was not published in Spain until 1978. You remember, Spain was fascist in 1936 after the uh, the political changes in Spain. They didn't want that book around. Uh, now, it seems remarkable to me that a fable written for children should receive this kind of attention simply because it makes a suggestion. Uh, It suggests that a male animal might prefer peace to war. 
<laughs> now, we all know that what we call the master narrative in our culture is a narrative, a story of a warrior. You know, our hero is the guy who fights and wins, who overcomes his demons. Homer wrote this story with a few nuances, but it's basically the same narrative throughout patriarchy. It is the mythos of Western civilization. Footnote here. We see one of the last peculiar parodies uh, in the White House today. It would be hilarious if it weren't so hideous. Um, what was it Voltaire said? Yes. Anyone who can make you believe absurdities can make you commit atrocities. That's our boy. Anyway, my two little sons loved Ferdinand when they were kids. I would say to them, like the mother in the story, yes, she was very understanding even though she was a cow, I would say to my boys, don't you want to go out and butt your heads together with all those other boys? Actually, baseball seemed to do it for them. Ferdinand is a kind of magic character. That is to say, he's cool. He's a hippie. He's not a coward. He's just not interested in pugilistic pursuits. He is a dreamer, a visionary. I always find one little boy and one little girl each Christmas and gift them with a copy of Ferdinand. Uh, once upon a time, I read the book on KPFA in radio, uh, on the radio here, and a thoughtful listener sent me a shocking, shocking ripoff. It's a Walt Disney book, yes. It was called A Walt Disney Beginning Reader from Bantam Books. It was back in the middle 80s. It was 50 years after the publication of the original and uh, the copyright had run out. So they did a rip-off. It's a travesty. But it is in the schools. It's from Disney's fun-to-read library. Yes, it has the official, the official seal of the public schools. The copy that the listener sent me had a child's name written inside the cover next to Mickey Mouse. Now, that book is titled Ferdinand and the Bullies. It is revisionist and corrupt. The pictures are the usual Disney cartoons, but the cork tree is there with the wine corks in clusters and so forth. The story has been altered to become a tale of male bonding between Ferdinand and his nephew Raymond. Ferdinand is the male mentor who teaches or initiates the younger bull and shows him when to fight. This is reductive junk, and it is an insult to the original artist who drew the whimsical, quirky, hilarious pictures of Ferdinand. Yes, it's hilarious pictures of the scene where the bee stings Ferdinand and they think he's the fiercest of all and the, the matador and the the uh, the funny guys in the ring with their crazy hats. To say nothing of an insult to the writer who conceived this zen bull, this contemplative laid-back character. So if you go to the stores to buy a children's book this year, please check to make sure that it's an original, you know. Childhood is so special. 
Childhood is the kingdom where nobody dies. I haven't been a child for, oh, long, long time, at least half a century. But I'm not one of those who forgets. Childhood is the kingdom where one is loved unconditionally, where fantasy is more powerful than reality, and where every little betrayal is a matter of life and death. I'm sure that you remember... Uh, now, I have nothing against the videos and the audio books that are so popular. It's just that the words, the words are warmer. They stay warmer longer if we hear them coming from those people we love. Uh, I used to call it breast reading. My sons were born in 1960 and 62. And breast reading associates breastfeeding with songs and stories so that the children learn that words are sustenance like food. This sensual approach gives words emotional power. It can't possibly be instilled later, you know, when words and language are associated with school, with written texts, and with spelling. Oh, yes. It's the human voice, the voice that was in your parents' mouth, you know, the people who read aloud to you, that's what brings the words to life. The poets, of course, know all this stuff. Uh, <laughs> Be sure when you check the books that you get an original. The Tales of Beatrix Potter are some of my favorites. They are sacred texts as far as I'm concerned. But I see that there's almost nothing left of them. They're cut down to a few phrases, you know, the Peter Rabbit books. And... Uh, Sometimes they use the original drawings, but even those are disappearing. You know, they have these bunny-shaped cardboard books. Um, never mind. The best of the very early, early childhood books are the works of Margaret Wise Brown. You know, uh, the masterpiece Goodnight Moon. Uh, they're chewable. Yes, I remember those cloth books, chewable. Uh, if you're buying books for grown-ups, I think I'll talk about those next week. Uh, books for women, books for uh, the pagan mysteries that we really celebrate at this time of year. The, the mysteries, yes, Gaia theology. I think I'll spend the rest of my time today on uh, Mary Poppins. That's one that we have forgotten. Uh, there's very little left of that in the movie, but... Uh, P.L. Travers, the woman who wrote it, was grateful for the the um, <laughs> the economic blessings that she got from the movie, but she was brokenhearted with the results. Um, the Julie Andrews film. Uh, you remember the Mary Poppins story. There's about, I think I've got seven books of Mary Poppins collections of stories. The first book, is just titled Mary Poppins, and then, then they have various titles. Uh, you remember the blast of wind, the house rattling bang, and Mary Poppins arrives, and she takes care of the children and turns their lives around. Uh, let's see, you know, uh, she does the make-believe trip with the children. My favorite, I remember when I first read it, uh, the first thing I loved was the bit about the children's father, uh, the children's father made money, you know, he worked in a bank, 
and he went into town and uh, he sat on a large chair in front of a large de- desk and made money. All day long he worked, cutting out pennies and shillings and half crowns and three penny bits, and he brought them home with him in his little black bag. Sometimes he would give some to Jane and Michael for their money boxes, and when he couldn't spare any, he would say the bank is broken, and they would know he hadn't made much money that day. (laughs) That was when I was young enough to think you could make your own money. Just cut it out and put it in your purse. Never mind. (laughs) Let me read you a little bit of um, the section the very opening chapter when Mary Poppins arrives. They're looking, Jane and Michael are looking uh, down the front path, waiting for their father to come home. And they see a shape uh, in the gathering darkness. And Jane says, that's not daddy, it's somebody else. Then the shape, tossed and bent under the wind, lifted the latch of the gate and they could see it belonged to a woman who was holding her hat on with one hand and carrying a bag in the other. As they watched, Jane and Michael saw a curious thing happen. As soon as the shape was inside the gate, the wind seemed to catch her up into the air and fling her at the house. It was as though it had flung her first at the gate, waited for her to open it, then had lifted and thrown her bag and all at the front door. The watching children heard a terrific bang. As she landed, the whole house shook. How funny, said Michael. I've never seen that happen before. Let's go and see who it is, said Jane. She drew him away from the window, out onto the landing. Presently, they saw their mother coming out of the drawing room, with a visitor following her. Jane and Michael could see that the newcomer had shiny black hair. Rather like a wooden Dutch doll, whispered Jane. She was thin, with large feet and hands, and small, rather peering blue eyes. You will find that they are very nice children, Mrs. Banks was saying. Michael's elbow gave a sharp dig at Jane's ribs. And that they give no trouble at all, continued Mrs. Banks uncertainly as if she herself didn't really believe what she was saying. They heard the visitor sniff, as though she didn't either. Now, Mrs. Banks went on, now about references. Oh, I make it a rule never to give references, said the other firmly. Mrs. Banks stared. But I thought it was usual, she said. I mean... I understood. People always did. A very old-fashioned idea, to my mind, Jane and Michael heard the stern voice say. Very old-fashioned, quite out of date, as you might say. Now, if there was one thing Mrs. Banks did not like, it was to be thought old-fashioned. She just couldn't bear it, so she said quickly, Very well, then. We won't bother about them. I only asked, of course... In case you required it, the nursery is upstairs. She led the way towards the staircase, talking all the time without stopping once. And because she was doing that, Mrs. Banks did not notice what was happening behind her. 
But Jane and Michael, watching from the top landing, had an excellent view of the extraordinary thing the visitor now did. Certainly she followed Mrs. Banks upstairs, but not in the usual way. With her large bag in her hands, she slid gracefully up the banisters and arrived at the landing at the same time as Mrs. Banks. Such a thing, Jane and Michael knew, had never been done before. Down, of course, for they had often done it themselves, but up, never. They gazed curiously at this strange new visitor. Well, that's all settled then, a sigh of relief came from the children's mother. Oh, quite as long as I'm satisfied, said the other, wiping her nose with a large red and white bandana handkerchief. Why, children, said Mrs. Banks, noticing them suddenly, what are you doing there? This is your new nurse, Mary Poppins. Jane, Michael, say how do you do? And these, she waved her hand at the babies in their cots, these are the twins. Mary Poppins regarded them steadily, looking from one to the other, as though she were making up her mind whether she liked them or not. Will we do, said Michael. Michael, don't be naughty, said his mother. Mary Poppins continued to regard the four children searchingly. Then with a long, loud sniff, that seemed to indicate that she had made up her mind, she said, I'll take the position. For all the world, as Mrs. Banks said to her husband later, as though she were doing us a signal honor. <laughs> Perhaps she is, said Mr. Banks, putting his nose around the corner of the newspaper for a moment. When their mother was gone, Jane and Michael edged toward Mary Poppins. She stood with her hands folded in front of her. How did you come? Jane asked. It looked just as if the wind blew you here. It did, said Mary Poppins. She proceeded to unwind her muffler from her neck, take off her hat, which she hung on one of the bedposts. As it did not seem as though Mary Poppins were going to say any more, though she sniffed a great deal, Jane, too, remained silent. But when she bent down to undo her bag, Michael could not restrain himself. What a funny bag, he said, pinching it with his fingers. Carpet, said Mary Poppins, putting her key in the lock. To carry carpets in, you mean? No. Made of. Oh, said Michael, I see, but he didn't quite. By this time, the bag was open. Jane and Michael were more than surprised to find it was completely empty. Why, said Jane, there's nothing in it. What do you mean, nothing? demanded Mary Poppins, drawing herself up and looking as though she'd been insulted. Nothing in it, did you say? With that, she took out from the empty bag a starched white apron and tied it around her waist. Next, she unpacked a large cake of sunlight soap, a toothbrush, packet of hairpins, bottle of scent, small folding armchair, and box of throat lozenges. Jane and Michael stared.
But I saw, whispered Michael. It was empty. Hush, said Jane, as Mary Poppins took out a large bottle labeled, One teaspoon to be taken at bedtime. A spoon was attached to the neck of the bottle. Into this, Mary Poppins poured a dark, crimson fluid. Is that your medicine, inquired Michael? No. Yours, said Mary Poppins, holding out the spoon to him. Michael stared, wrinkled up his nose, began to protest. I don't want it. I don't need it. I won't. But Mary Poppins' eyes were fixed upon him. Michael suddenly discovered that you could not look at Mary Poppins and disobey her. There was something strange and extraordinary about her. Something that was frightening and at the same time most exciting. The spoon came nearer. He held his breath, shut his eyes and gulped. A delicious taste ran round his mouth. He turned his tongue in it, swallowed a happy smile, ran round his face. Strawberry ice, he said ecstatically. More, more, more. But Mary Poppins, her face as stern as before, was pouring out a dose for Jane. It ran into the spoon, silvery, greeny, yellowy. Jane tasted it. Lime juice cordial, she said, sliding her tongue deliciously over her lips. But when they saw uh, Mary Poppins moving towards the twins, Jane rushed at her. Oh, no, no, please. They're too young. It wouldn't be good for them, please. Mary Poppins, however, took no notice. But with a warning, terrible glance at Jane, she tipped the spoon towards John's mouth. He lapped at it eagerly, and by the few drops that were spilt on his bib, Jane and Michael could tell that the substance in the spoon this time was milk. Then Barbara had her share. She gurgled and licked the spoon twice. Mary Poppins then poured out another dose and solemnly took it herself. <laughs> Rum punch, she said, smacking her lips and corking the bottle. Jane's eyes and Michael's popped with astonishment, but they were not given much time to wonder, for Mary Poppins, having put the miraculous bottle on the mantelpiece, turned to them. Now, she said, spit spot into bed, and she began to undress them. They noticed that whereas buttons and hooks had needed all sorts of coaxing from Katie Nana, Katie Nana was their, uh, other nanny, the one who's gone now. For Mary Poppins, the buttons and hooks flew apart almost at a look. In less than a minute, they found themselves in bed and watching by the dim light of the nightlight the rest of Mary Poppins unpacking. From the carpet bag, she took out seven flannel nightgowns, four cotton ones, a pair of boots, a set of dominoes, two bathing caps, and a postcard album. Last of all came a folding camp bedstead with blankets 
and eider-down complete. And this she set down between John's cot and Barbara's. Jane and Michael sat hugging themselves and watching. It was all so surprising that they could find nothing to say, but they knew, both of them, that something strange and wonderful had happened at number 17 Cherry Tree Lane. Mary Poppins, Michael cried, you'll never leave us, will you? You won't leave us, will you, he called. One more word from your direction, she said, and I'll call a policeman. Mary Poppins said, I'll stay till the wind changes. <laughs> this has been Jennifer Stone. Try to find a children's book before the week is out. I'll be back on the air Thursday morning at 8.20 with Ferdinand the Bull. Till then, go easy. And if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. Drop the Voices of Middle East and North Africa for genuine, authentic, indigenous perspectives from the Middle East and North Africa every week, Wednesdays from 7 to 8 p.m. on KPFA Free Speech Community Radio. Now you can hear us every Wednesday, rain or shine, at 7 p.m. Heart-hitting public affairs as well as arts, literature, and culture programming that dares to speak truth to power. Voices of Middle East and North Africa, a program that is rooted in our community and reaches out to the entire public at large. Make sure and join us every Wednesday evening from 7 to 8 p.m. See you there.